able to see if I brought the um, Clinton Arnold's definition of topos because it's so wonderful. And then Rick has put together, uh, Rick Hockenberg has been one of my prayer partners that flew from Dallas to spend a week praying for the people that were helping to get free. And Rick is developing a prayer partner's manual. And I looked through that this morning to see if it was in there. It's not in there. But I also had some material. I've got the six chapters of my book here. And the fellow who is um, working on the book is going to be coming today someday to we're going to swap. He's going to take these six chapters and give me the last two or three chapters and to go over. And I just happened to, the first the chapter here that I have is on occultic activity. And so I know some of you came in today. You weren't here last night. And uh, we were talking about taking that ground to the enemy. And we said that uh, the, the major area is occultic activity in someone's life. And if they have been involved in that and you try to help them and bypass that, it doesn't work. Because if there's any reason for someone to come under tremendous attack of the enemy is when they have purposely gone into darkness for power, guidance, healing, or protection. And when they have, and you try to bypass that and help them, uh, it doesn't work, I can tell you. And uh, as I shared the, the fellow we had just this week who had so much demonic power, I've never known a man that's had so much power as that. And I was so thankful that... I had good prayer support there, but I was looking in this, this opened up the book, uh, this file, and I saw this, this story. Some of you heard the story, but it's just an excellent story of occultic activity. Uh, I told you I, I've done medical seminars for medical doctors, and it trained a number of doctors in recognizing there's another dimension to the problem than just physical, and that pills and all that stuff just doesn't seem to touch some of the problems. Well, um, one of the doctors that, that heard me gave me a telephone call, and he called me. He's an ER doctor. In fact, amazing how many ER doctors that we worked with. And he said, that Jim, we had the most just creepy experience at the emergency room today, and I just want to bounce this off of you. He said, uh, when I walk into the emergency room, said, I know that often there are, are, are deep problems that you don't see. And so you're bandaging up an arm that's bleeding, and you got a ruptured spleen. And so he said, when I walk in, I just pray, God, give me wisdom, you know, that I'd be able to get right to what is the real issues here. And so he's walked in, and, and, and he was praying in his heart and asking God for wisdom and that he would treat this person with all the, his skills and that the Lord would guide him in what to do. And as he walked in, there was a lady on a gurney that he was to see, and he, was, he didn't shut his eyes. I mean, he just crying out to God in his heart. She raised up from the gurney, she looked at him, and she said, stop praying for me. It freaked him out. He said the hair in the back of his neck stood up, he just looked at this lady, and he said, I think this is a Logan thing. <laughs> so uh, the lady was totally out of touch with reality, and uh, so he committed her to the psychiatric section of that hospital. And so he called me on the phone and he said, Jim, he said, wow, he said, I don't know. He said, this was, you just have to be there. You just have to see your face. You have to see your eyes. He said, it just was so frightening to me. He said, it just, it's the hair stood up all over me. I said, this lady's been involved in the occult. He said, how can you say that? I mean, you haven't seen her. I just told you that little bit of what happened. I said, just, just trust me. I said, this lady has been involved, heavily duty in occult involvement. I said, why don't you check with the um, psychiatric part of the hospital later on? He said, okay, and I'll give you a call back. I said, yeah, I don't want to hear from you. 
so on Wednesday, he, he talked to the head psychiatrist. He'd been there 10 years. He said, this is the worst case that I've ever seen in our psychiatric division in this hospital. And he said, well, what's your assessment of the case? And this is what this non-Christian psychiatrist said. This woman has traveled to another dimension and has been trapped there by other beings. Not a bad, not a bad description of what was taking place. So on Friday, he called again and they let her go. He said, you let her go? <laughs> I mean, you turned this lady loose on the public. Now she's liable to hurt herself or hurt somebody. He said, no, she's fine. And he said, well, because he called me and told me this. And he said, well, what, what was wrong? He said, oh, she was a new age channeler and she was channeling a spirit that got stuck. It finally decided to leave and she was fine. And we let her go. He said, you were right. I said, I know I was right. A Bible school called me from, from uh, Fiji Islands. And they were holding one of the students down on the ground, five men. And this girl was flipping these five men off like nothing. And so they called because there's a medical doctor that was standing there who was, happened to be visiting that Bible school, a heart specialist. And he said, this is one of those Jim Logan things. I'll give you his number. You call him in the States. So they called me from this Bible school in Fiji Islands and just said, this girl is flipping guys off and this is just terrible. And I just said, the girl's been heavily involved in a cult. How did you know that? I said, well, you know, that's, is it normal for Christians to be able to flip fellows off like flies? I mean, it's just not normal behavior. There's something going on here. This girl is being empowered by powers that are stronger than she is. And so um, they said, oh, yeah, she's put curses on people and done all that, but she's a Christian now. I said, did she ever take him back to ground when she was in darkness? So we don't think so. I said, well, stop holding her down. You're only hurting her. You're not hurting the spirits. And command them in the name of Christ to leave her alone. And have this girl take back all ground that she's given in occultic activities. And this girl, and I hung up the phone. I never heard a word about this. Well, some of you saw the pastor's video, and that story was in the pastor's video, because I couldn't travel to all the major cities with Bill, and Bill said, just make a video, and I'll take it, take it this time. Because it's so hard for me to get back to Sioux City, Iowa. It's nowhere. And the bill would get back early, and I wouldn't get back in the middle of the middle of the night, and then have to leave early in the morning to catch them somewhere in some other city. And so we did a video, which was a lot helpful. Well, I got a a phone call from Oklahoma City, and the fellow says, "Oh, I'm a pastor. You don't know me, but I saw that video. I just got back from Fiji Islands. I just got back from doing a week of spiritual life meetings in that Bible school." And he said, I want you to know, they pointed out this girl, and they said, see that girl over there? Now, you won't believe this, but this girl, we were holding to the ground. She was throwing people off. She had unbelievable powers. She was heavily involved in occult stuff. She took back the ground. We commanded anything associated with the enemy to leave. This girl is the finest student we've had the rest of this year, and she's going to marry this fine Christian fellow, and we have high hopes for them in the ministry. We called somebody in America, but we don't remember who it was. <laughs> so I thought you'd like a happy ending to your phone call. And I said, well, thank you for letting me know what happened in this girl's life. So occultic activity is extremely, extremely important to deal with. You can't bypass it because the enemy, will, they won't hear what you're saying. They'll, they'll go out on you. You go like this. Is anybody home as you're talking to them? Because all of a sudden they just are staring and because they're not dealt with, with that. Because that's the most powerful one. The second issue that we want to deal with today in taking background is the most powerful issue uh, outside of occultic activity that we're finding. Dr. Neil Anderson is a very close friend of mine. Some of you, somebody said, I've seen you before. 
And they said, hey, did any videos with Neil Anderson? I said, yes, I did one with children, demons and children, and, and the children being under demonic attack with Neil. And Neil's on our board of, of our group and uh, just a, a real dear friend. And Neil has found that this is a major cause of people being in bondage, Christians being in bondage. The question, we didn't share this, but I want to share this with you because I remember last night I went for a walk and was praying, what didn't I say I should have said? Um, and that is, the question is not what's happening in a believer's life when they're being defeated or, in, or something is radically wrong. But the question is why. Don't get caught up in the what's, but why. This is not what God has promised for those who trust him and are walking with him. This is not eternal life. You know what I mean? They may have eternal life, but this certainly isn't life abundant. You know what I'm saying? There's something radically wrong here. They're being shortchanged. They're being robbed of something in their life. This is not what my concept of, of, of you know, Christianity. It just isn't. And there's no peace. There's no joy. Uh, it just isn't what God said. And, the, and we find a lot of people give up on Christianity. They just bail out of it. It just did not work for them. They said, I know the Bible says all this, but I'm not experiencing any of this in my life. Because Satan is what? A robber, remember? And he robs him of, of what should be the benefits of our walk and relationship with Christ. The most peaceful people you should know should be believers. Should be believers. To just have inner peace in the midst of saying, in the midst of stuff. But before we look at the second one, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1 because we need to look at another aspect of who we are in Christ. The book of Ephesians is, is a very important book. Uh, I know we have some pastors here. We have some Bible college professors here and ex-Bible college professors. So I'm going to recommend a book for those who are Greek readers and those who like heavy-duty books. And the book is Ephesians, Power and Magic by Clinton Arnold. Uh, when I bought it, it was $42 for 170 pages. But it's now been republished by Baker uh, Book Company. It's a very heavy-duty book. Clinton Arnold is a godly, wonderful professor out of Talbot Seminary, just the neatest guy, sweet, a real sweet Christian fellow. And uh, he wrote this book on Ephesians as his doctrinal thesis, and it's heavy-duty. I'm telling you, you've got to wade through it. But boy, I'll tell you, you read that book, Ephesians will make sense to you because he gives you the background of the people at Ephesus why Paul was moved by the Spirit of God to write this book and why he said what he said. One of the things that got Clinton Arnold's attention was when he read Ephesians, and he was trying to figure out what should you do his doctrinal thesis on, he was going to the University of Edinburgh, and he said, you know, the, the thing that, that got his attention is why is the word power in the book of Ephesians more than any other book in the Bible except Romans? And there's only six chapters. Why did Paul keep saying power, power, power? What was the purpose of that? There had to be a reason. And when Clinton Arnold did his Greek exegesis and then studied the religion there, he came back a believer in the spirit world. In fact, Neil Anderson was teaching at Talbot, and he went to Dr. Anderson, and he said, Neil, do you realize that spirits are real? <laughs> Neil said, yeah, I've been aware of that. <laughs> and he came to the reality from what? The scriptures. Just the scriptures. Now, when we say Ephesus, we know it's probably a city buried under some dirt somewhere, you know, in, in overseas someplace. But if you said Ephesus in Bible days, it's like saying Rome to a Catholic. 
When you say Rome to a Catholic, they think of the headquarters of their religion and all that is involved there for them. It's a very important place for them. In Ephesus, it was the headquarters of the religion of Artemisism. And it was all over that whole area. People in Colossae were in that all over. As I speak to missionaries, I do a lot of speaking to missionary groups all over the world. They would give anything if they could win people to Christ that had no religious background. Because, you know, you can get the boy off the farm, but you try to get the farm out of the boy. And you get someone coming out of a, out of a, out of a, a false religion. You can get them to Christ, but getting a false religion out of that person is very difficult. You've been trained and you have a belief system, and to be transformed from that belief system is a real battle. And so Paul is really concerned because Paul knew the teaching of Artemis. And this was the headquarters of the religion of Artemis. And they built there a temple to one of their chief gods or goddesses, Diana. And the temple of Diana, and I've had a, 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 an architect recently uh, that was with me, just a brilliant fellow, considered one of the third best out of a hundred and some architects in his particular organization he's in. And I said, is the Temple of Diana still considered by architects as one of the ten wonders of the world? And he said, absolutely, with the pyramids and some of these others. Just architecturally, that building was outstanding. So here in Ephesus was this temple to Diana with a thousand priestesses every day that, permitted, uh, that, that were involved in immorality as worship to Diana. And so there was all kinds of immorality going on at Ephesus. It was just the center of immorality. The second thing going on at Ephesus was demons. They were heavily involved with demons. And so Paul is so burdened for these people coming out of this darkness, great darkness, and great sexual bondage as part of their religion, that he was moved by the Spirit of God to write a book called what? Ephesians. And you'll find, if you read the tenets of Artemisianism, it parallels the teaching of New Age today, you think you're reading just exactly the New Age philosophy. So if there ever was a relevant book for the day you and I are presently living, it's the book of Ephesians. We really ought to get this book down to understand what the students in high school and the students in our colleges and universities and grad schools are struggling with because this teaching has gone all over the world. I don't know a university anywhere in the world that is not teaching New Age philosophy. Not one. There are more young people in Russia embracing New Age than embracing Jesus Christ. You go to East Germany and the universities there, more young people are going into New Age than they're going into Jesus Christ. Ask any of the worldwide campus movements, they'll tell you that. And what is interesting, that New Age has no missionaries and no headquarters. And yet it's everywhere. You looked at the, the, you looked at the school system, you look what they're teaching in the public schools here. How much New Age philosophy is being taught in kindergarten on no, no. It's all in there. It's just it's part of our society today. So this book is so relevant. And I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, and I want you to see some very important truth. Um, in fact, if we only had one book on warfare, the book I would pick is the book of Ephesians. I mean, this is really a book on how to live in a world that the enemy is all over the place. How can we live a victorious um, and get to know this book. And you know that before I understood warfare, Ephesians was one of the books I disliked. Amazing. I just, I'd read it. I didn't understand it. I'd skip it. Now, that's what you do, you know. You read something you don't know in the Bible, you skip instead of trying to figure out what God's saying. I'll know, I'll, you know, three verses later, I'll pick up something I understand. And I was skipping over some very important teaching. Here I was teaching 
students to counsel and pastors to counsel in jumping over all this important teaching in Ephesians is, I feel grieved. In fact, I've called. Some of my students are running counseling centers around America, and I've called them. And they said, I know you have gone to extremism. In fact, one of Jay Adams' top teachers, very top teachers, is one of my students I discipled. And he thinks I have just gone off the wall. I said, you go back to every single person you've counseled you can't help. You're going to know, if you'll look, there's demonic involvement, and you never dealt with it. You dealt with it on another level. You never dealt with the whole issue, and that's why they're not free, and that's why they're still in bondage. You've X'd them out. He said, ah, you know, if you can't help them ten times, they're out. I mean, that's the philosophy. Ten times, that's it. Then that means you don't want help. Well, let me tell you, we get people that have spent all. They wanted help. But no one sat down with them and helped them take back ground. And when the ground was taken back, they walk out different people. So Ephesians chapter 1, we have Paul's prayer here. This is the warfare prayer, and we want to look at it. And we've got to run through this prayer. I'd like to spend more time with it, but there's no way we can skip this prayer if we're really going to do justice here to Scripture and to the whole warfare teaching. Paul says in verse 15, Wherefore I also, after heard of your faith in Lord Jesus Christ and your love to all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom is being able to see my life and my life situations from a different perspective, God's perspective. Because there is a way that seems right unto man, but it's the ways of what? Death. I do not believe that God ever commands us to do what is natural. And Ephesians has commands here about relationships that are not natural. It is not natural for a man to love his wife. If it was natural for a man to love his wife, God would not command him to do it. It is not natural for a woman to submit to her husband. They say, you don't know my husband. I said, yeah, I, I know. Don't trust him. You know, it's, isn't it interesting God never told a woman to trust her husband? It's not in Scripture. I mean, there may be a nice husband here, but I haven't seen a husband worthy of trust yet. Trust God to work through your husband. It's different, isn't it? Because we've got to trust the person and we see what? Holes. You got any holes in your life? You know, if we had a hole machine here and you stood in front of it, we see Swiss cheese. <laughs> Aren't we people in process? Isn't that what the Scripture says? He will perfect that which concerns us. Yeah, I don't like my wife to go because I can come off as a good Christian. <laughs> See, I keep her home and I can tell you how wonderful I am. <laughs> She's here, she'd set the record straight. She lives with me. But she loves me anyway. And we're in process. And we wrestle through issues and all this stuff. You know, I wish I could say I never get upset with my wife. She wishes I could say that. <laughs> but I do, and I feel badly when I do. At least now I can correct it. But we're still in process. And God is still working in our lives. And so we need wisdom, and we need to pray. James 1, if any of you lack what? Wisdom, let him ask of God. God wants to reveal his mind to us. There is a way that seems right unto men. God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. And my way, your ways are not my ways. And I need to understand God's thoughts and God's ways. I need to cry out to God, show me. And we are in situations, I can't tell you sometimes, that are just absolutely horrendous. And I walk the halls and say, God, if you don't show me what to do, I don't know what to do. I mean, this is your child in there. You know, for a long time, it was my reputation at stake. And I really believe this. I, I resolve that. It's not my reputation at stake. Whether this person's helped or is not helped, this is a person that belongs to God. 
And God, if I am to be the one to help them, you've got to show me because there's something not right. Something is not working. We had a fellow that came. This fellow was in Christian ministry and he had one of the very weird sexual addictions that I've ever dealt with. And he left our you know, office helped but not free. We knew he wasn't free. He knew he wasn't free. I knew he wasn't free. God did not give me the, the, the assurance in my heart that this brother's been set free. Why? We didn't know. And we just said, God, there's something wrong here. But this guy is in trouble. There's something wrong. We don't know what it is. But I know that God knows what it is. And this fellow went out and got involved in his addiction and was arrested. God took him to a deeper level. God gave him an opportunity to deal with the issues in his life, honestly and openly. But there was an area of his life, and he got arrested. Now he's on probation. He sees a parole officer. That doesn't help when you're in Christian ministry a whole lot, because he's not in Christian ministry anymore. And um, so this, this fellow, I kept thinking, and I would call him on the phone. I'd talk to him, and he'd have a degree of victory, but horrible defeat. And when he was defeated, it was bad. And then he'd have a degree of victory for a while and then horrible defeat. And I said, that's not freedom. There's something radically wrong here. And uh, he went to Promise Keepers. And he went there this year with his father. And all of a sudden, when he was there, he began to cry. And he began to realize all the resentments he had never really dealt with to his father. And he dealt with those resentments and he asked his father's forgiveness and his father asked his forgiveness for failing him and so on and immediately he was set free but see there was still that area he didn't go deep enough in the area of resentments and bitterness and God had to bring him deeper and he said I'm free now Jim I'm tempted now but it's nothing before I was tempted it's like something grabbed a hold of me he said now I'm tempted it's outside it's just like yeah I could do it if I wanted to but I don't want to do it. There's not that inner drive anymore. And I said, that's what we're talking about. That's called freedom. Not freedom from temptation, but a new freedom to say no to temptation that wasn't there before because of that driving force from within. And so this is wisdom. And God says, pray for wisdom. Well, God didn't give me wisdom with the spell. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. But God knew, and God, he needed time, and he had to bring this fellow to the end of S-E-L-F. The end of self. It wasn't there yet. God brought him to the end of self and then God was able to speak to his heart and he dealt with heart issues and he got free. Okay, then he prays, in the revelation of the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. In a, in a conference like this, unless the Holy Spirit takes the scriptures and enlightens you, you're not going to get it. You just don't get it. What he's saying, I just don't get it. I don't understand. But the Holy Spirit can make these things true. The reality of the enemy and what he does and so on, the Holy Spirit can do that. It's the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit. And so, understanding, wisdom is the ability to see as God sees. Understanding is, now I know what to do. Because if I don't see it from God's perspective, I don't know what to do, right? I don't know what to do. But God can give me wisdom, and then I have understanding, and I know what to do. And he's saying, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will give you understanding, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of his glory of the inheritance in the saints. He's saying, do you know your inheritance. Do you know what is rightfully yours as a Christian? Do you know what God has given you? You know, it's wonderful to be an heir. 
My mother died. I got a letter from the government, and they told me that I was an heir, that my mother had a life insurance policy with the government. She worked with the government, and that I was going to get some money, and I could get it in one lump sum. I could have it invested. I could get it. All these check or none of the above, and we'll send you more information. So I checked none of the above because I'd never been an heir before, and they didn't tell me how much money. I had no idea. But it was kind of exciting to know that somehow I'd become an heir of, you know, on a physical level. And uh, so I was waiting for this letter from the government. So one day uh, uh, my wife called and she said, Jim, a letter came from the government and uh, it's, it's about your inheritance. And I said, open it. No, it's addressed to you and you need to open it. It's yours. My wife's very proper that way. It's not only for her to open a letter that's addressed to me, but it's to Mr. and Mrs. She'll open it. She says, no, you need to open it. I just feel it's right for you to open it. So I, you know, I wasn't very good in counseling that <laughs> the rest of the day, knowing that here, I, here we are, you know, uh, trusting the Lord to meet our needs and looking to Him to meet our financial needs and, and knowing at home there's this letter about my inheritance. So I went home and I opened it and I was really disappointed because they must not have read my letter because they, there was a check in there. And so when I pulled it out, instead of them sending me information about my inheritance, they sent me my whole inheritance. And I think it was $98.65. <laughs> I was an heir and it was kind of exciting. And we're heirs in Christ. And see, another thing that caused um, Clinton Arnold to write his first book, uh, Ephesians Power Magic, was that he saw, as he was looking through Ephesians, that 40 times in six chapters, Paul talked about being in Christ. So somehow the power of God and in Christ and the demonic activity going on here, somehow that all had to make sense. It was all part of this whole thing. Because that's a lot of times to keep going in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Um... So he wanted them to know that, and he said, the next verse, 19, is the most powerful verse in all the Bible on God's power. There is no other way, Greek, English, that you can say anything more about God's power in the next verse. What is, and he's saying that God would open your eyes so you might know who you are in Christ, and you might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. He said, may God open your eyes so you might understand something of the dynamic power that you have within you. The Holy Spirit. You might understand that. He said, I'm praying God will open your eyes to that. Now I ask myself this question. Why did God say exceeding greatness of his power? Why did he say, I just pray that God will open your eyes and you might see that God is powerful. Isn't that enough? Say yes enough, isn't it? God's powerful. That's all I need to know. What's exceeding greatness? Then I thought, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Why didn't God say you're just a conqueror? Then why is it saying in Ephesians, God is able to do, which is period, that's enough, isn't it? Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Why did God say that? And you know, this is just my Logan interpretation. Is you and I put periods too quick. Oh, God's got power, but... You don't understand my problem, right? We go with the buts and the periods, and God says, wait a minute. God has exceeding great power. I don't care what your problem is, God has greater power. And we, that's uh, something we've got to get a hold of. Paul said if these Ephesians are going to make it coming out of a demonic sexual bondage darkness, they've got to understand that God has more power than the powers that they saw and experienced and the bondages that they were having in their lives. They had to see that. Very, very important. And this power is working in us. And he said, this power is demonstrated which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
Now, how much power does it take to raise a dead man? Well, I don't know. Do you? Now, let's say we, we uh, go to a funeral, and uh, you're a Christian, I'm not Christian, and we're there, and no one else is there, and the person's laid out in their clean jeans and T-shirt. You know, there they are, laid out in the, the box. And so we walk up, and I say, hey, that's, that's our friend, Bill, and you're a believer, aren't you? Yeah. The guy's been embalmed with whatever they embalm you with, and I said, do something. If you're Christianity, do something. You know, you're a Christian, do something here. What would you tell me? I think you would say very obviously, it's too late, right? When you're all in bond in clean jeans, it's just too late. The blood's all gone and whatever. I don't know what they put in. We've got a couple of doctors here. They can tell us what they put in. But they put some kind of fluid in there. It's too late. You know what I think God is saying? My power works in hopeless situations. That's a hopeless situation. When a man's dead, what? He's dead. And God says, I've got the power that gives life to a dead man. It's power that works in a situation where you can't do anything. Something that's beyond you. The second one that he says here is when he not only raised Jesus from the dead. Is Jesus walking around here somewhere? No. He's not just walking around earth, but he raised him off the earth into heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I can identify with that. In fact, one of my prayer partners worked in a NASA program. And right then, I turned around to my counselees and showed them a shuttle that he took a picture very close to the shuttle taking off. And we know something of that power, don't we? The kind of power it takes to put a man on the moon. That's the kind of power that God has available for you to live the victorious Christian life. That kind of power. And I can visualize that kind. Can't, can't you visualize the thing going up and all that power coming out of there? God said, that's a power that's in you. So live victoriously for me. And then he said, he seated him as right hand in heaven. Why does God tell us Jesus is sitting down? Now, it's a very important point here. Jesus is seated. Why? Because the work is finished and God is satisfied. Salvation, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament things, and the defeat of the enemy. And he's seated in heaven. And then he says in verse 21, Far above all principalities, powers, might, and dominion, every name that is named, not only this world, but the world to come. Those are all demonic powers. Those are all demonic names there. He says Jesus is seated above all the spirit world. And then he says he's put all the spirit world under his feet. Now, why does he say that? Because this was a military term. This was very understanding. Whenever the Bible talks about warfare, it either used sports terms or military terms. This is another military term. You go to Joshua. When one king would conquer another king, they would bring out the highest ranking living officer. He would lay down on the ground. They would put their foot on his throat. And uh, I was speaking at his mansion, which is a phenomenal ministry for kids 18 on up that are drug addicts, ex-drug addicts, or trying to get out of drugs, prostitution, and all of that horrible thing. These kids go and live there. It's a brethren place in New Hampshire. It's just phenomenal. So I was speaking to these kids. I mean, here we got these kids that are losers, right? I mean, these kids are losers. That's why they're there. And they say, I don't want to live like this. And they're trying to learn how to break the bondages in these kids' lives. And I said, would anybody come up here and let me demonstrate this? You know, let me put my foot on your throat. Well, that's one of the most vulnerable parts of your body. And I had a kid say, I will. I go, put your hand down. I don't want you to come up here and lay down. And so it's a picture of total subjection. Jesus has put his foot on the neck of the enemies. Joshua, they brought the kings out and they put their foot on the neck of the enemies and then they cut their heads off. 
And this shows that the spirit world is in total subjection to Christ. They couldn't be any more defeated than what they're defeated because Christ has put his foot on them. It's a beautiful picture there in verse 22. And given him to be head over all things to the church was his body that filleth him, that filleth all in all. And you, that's us, has he made alive who were dead in our trespasses and sin, where in times past we walked according to the course of this world. The philosophy of this world. Who set the philosophy of this world? Who did? Satan did. He is the prince of power of the air. The whole world lies in the wicked one. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says what? Don't be conformed to the philosophy of this world. Why? Because it's a philosophy of the enemy. It's contrary to the Word of God. It's contrary to the teachings of the Word of God. He said, don't be conformed to that because the one who's promoting this thing is the enemy. And if you buy that philosophy, it's a philosophy is a way of life, all of this kind of thing. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation, or we used to live in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's where we were living. We would say, I don't see anything wrong with that. See, the final authority in our life in those days was me. That's the final authority. Every man did what was what? Right in his own eyes. That's the only authority there was. I don't see anything wrong with it. That's where we are. That's our culture and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he said, that's where we were, children of wrath, even, even as others. But verse 4 is a tremendous verse. But God. See, something happened. What happened? God. But if God hadn't entered my life, I don't know where I'd be today. I'd probably be an alcoholic. I was fast on the road becoming an alcoholic when God came into my life. But God came into my life, and things are different. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, we get people in our office that are in horrible bondage, and it, often it's ladies. I don't mean, I mean, in the kind of bondage I'm talking about. We get men in worse bondages than ladies, because usually they're into doing we have them sit down and I have them write the, these four words down. I say, put down authority, accountability, affirmation, and acceptance. I said, just, just write these words down. Authority, accountability, affirmation, and acceptance. So how do you see God coming to you, top down or bottom up? And almost all people, especially if they're strong Bible Christians, see God top down. And then I have them put a little, one of these little faces. I said, right, right here, performance-oriented. You are trying to earn God's love. And you're working, and you're working, and you're doing, and you're doing, and you're exhausted. And you still don't feel that God loves you or accepts you. You're just not there yet. It's like the carrot before the donkey, you know, to get him to go. The only problem is we're not donkeys. And all of a sudden, we get tired of going. You know, try, tired of trying to pursue, pursue the carrot that we never get. Let me ask you this. If God loved you when you were a sinner, now that you're a child, now that you're a child of God, do you have to earn it? It doesn't make sense, does it? Why do I serve God? Not so he'll love me, but because he loves me. Not so he'll accept me, 
because I'm accepted in the beloved, but because he accepts me, I have a freedom. See, there remains a rest for God's people. Let us labor to enter into that rest. And when you enter that rest, then from that rest, labor. And it's a whole different kind of labor. I'm not serving God, so somewhere along the line, maybe he'll accept me. Maybe he'll love me. God loves me. I don't know why he loved me. He said, God chose me before the foundation of the world. I said, that makes sense. He wouldn't have chosen me afterwards. (laughs) I wouldn't have chosen me. (laughs) I understand all that heavy-duty stuff, but I just know what it says. And God loves me. God loves you. God does not necessarily love what you're doing. He may not approve of what you're doing, but he loves you as a person. That's settled. And I'm accepted in the Beloved. And I don't have to try and earn it. But I'll tell you, that you're on that. You know what you're on? You're on one of those treadmills that's going nowhere. And you'll get exhausted in your Christianity. Just exhausted. Running, 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 running. And just never feeling that I'm doing enough or good enough or whatever. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. I mean, people are there. It is so terrible for them. Okay, let's go on. But God, who is rich in mercy, when his great love, even when we were dead in our sins, has quickened us together... With Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. At this time, if I have teenagers, I like to frustrate teenagers because you frustrate them, they never forget in counseling. So I hold up uh, a quarter. And I said, what do you see? And they go, Washington. I said, you're wrong. Jefferson. You're wrong. If they even said their father, I'd say they're wrong. You know? and, I, and finally they're going, Logan, come on, what's going on here? I said, well, it's an eagle. Can't you see? See, there's two sides to the coin. And if you don't understand there's two sides to the truth, of this major truth, you missed a major truth in the Bible. The first truth is this. I said, where are you seated? They said, on your couch. So where's, where's my couch? Sioux City, Iowa. Sioux City. I said, where's Sioux City? Iowa. I said, do you have any Sioux City, Iowa feelings? No. So how do you know you're here then? Well, I, you know, I saw, I saw a sign. Oh, you believe that sign. But you trust in Christ, you don't think you're saved, huh? You have to have some saved feelings. I said, see this? I'm married. I said, do I have any married feelings right now? What if I don't have any married feelings? Maybe I'm married. But see, I got a certificate that says, for better, worse, and all that stuff. And signed and all that. I know I'm married. But I got any feelings or not. Do you understand what I'm saying? I receive Christ as Savior. I may not always have, what, salvation feelings. I may not always have some kind of, oh, I just feel I'm a child of God. I'm concerned about people that walk around feeling like that all the time. I don't think that's normal. I don't think it's normal to feel you're not a child of God. But you know what I'm saying? This happy, happy, happy Christian kind of pseudo-spirituality and they're just always wonderful, they're always on top, they're always sweet, they're always whatever. I'm going, that's not normal. We're real people. But it's, it's a fact whether I have any feelings or not. And that's what we're getting on. There's a fact here. Christ is, and I said, you know, you're seated on the couch, where's Christ? He's in heaven, where else is he? He's in me. I said, right. So you're seated on the couch right now and Christ is in you. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about you being in Christ. 
That's, that's the theme of Ephesians. Not Christ in you, but you in Christ. So we go over there. And I said, right now, you are positionally seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's what the scripture says. Right now, in Christ, I'm seated in the heavens. I said, where is the enemy in relationship to you? And they said, under my feet. I said, absolutely right. That is the authority of the believer. It's because I am in Christ. I've told the story, but it's probably a good one to illustrate this point. When I was in, um, I was counseling, and I had spoken in a Bible college, and the head RA asked if he could bring his son to see me. That's our head resident assistant. and said, can I bring my, I mean, my brother to see you? I know my brother is, is really a mess, uh, really heavily involved in all kinds of strange demonic stuff going on in his life. I just know that's what it is. So they brought him to the mission where I was vice president, and, and uh, we had a, a building that had 74 rooms in it and bathrooms, like a motel, except we call it the lodge. And uh, this fellow was in there and his brother. Well, I came on a Sunday to let him know. I forgot to tell him where to meet me. And the mission is huge. We had 120 at the office there. And so where to find me in all that building with the printing that we did and all the artists and all that stuff going on there. It, and the building is all spread out and all the students that were there and missionaries home on furlough. There was just hundreds of people there and there's no way you'd be able to find me. So I told my wife, I'm going to drive over on Sunday afternoon and see if the guys are here and tell them where to meet me tomorrow. I forgot to tell them. And so there were a lot of people in the building, and I knocked on the door, and when I knocked on the door, the door opened inward. And when it opened inward, the twin bed, if it was a twin bedroom, one bed had to be against the wall. The rooms were kind of small, so that when the door opened, the kid I knew was sitting on the bed, but the door was between me and him. I couldn't see him. The only one I saw was his brother, who I'd never seen before. I had a pair of jeans and an old flannel shirt hanging on the outside. I didn't look like Dr. Logan. Uh, you know, he had no idea what it looked like. And the kid was looking out the window. We had a lake there, and it was a beautiful place. And he turned around and looked at me, and he just said this, Logan, we're not afraid of you. And I'm going, oh, brother. <laughs> I just walked in. He didn't, you know, I'm going, this is creepy. So I sat on the bed, and I looked at this, this, this fellow, and probably 27, 28, and I said, why would you be afraid of me? They said, we're not afraid of you, and we want you to know it. And I said, I'm not here representing Jim Logan. I'm here representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, we're afraid of him. So we are what? In Christ. We're in Christ. The enemy has already been defeated. And God says, put your foot on him. He has no right to have a grip on your life unless you let him. And that's what we're talking about, ground, letting him do this. Some of you have heard this story. I want to share it again because it so, so illustrates this. There was a couple that went on their first missionary trek into Canada out into the way back on an Indian reserve. They were the only particular couple there that were non-Indian, living in a very tiny cabin. It gets very cold up there. And in the wintertime, they would go out like every, you know, 40, every 45 days or so to get food and come back in. They were out there, and every night, they're brand new missionaries, somebody would walk around their cabin with snowshoes on and would just crunch the snow. If it didn't snow that night, they'd look out, no snowshoe marks. And every night they kept waiting for this to walk around their cabin, their hair stood on the end, and they knew that this was creepy. This was not normal. There was nobody out there, and yet somebody was definitely walking around their cabin. And they were so frightened that they were ready to just bail out of being missionaries. This is just too creepy. 
So they went into the town, and when they went to get groceries, they called the, the, the guy over the mission department, and he, they said, you know, we, we don't know what's going on, but let us tell you what's happening. Somebody's walking around our cabin every night, and this is so frightening, and so on. And they said this, how long will this go on? And the mission director said, as long as you allow it. Isn't that excellent? Stand against it. You don't have to be frightened. You don't have to be. I was hoping there would be a young boy here that was frightened by spirits at eight years of age. And um, he was 16 or 17 now. And he took a stand against them and commanded them to leave. His father is the president of a missionary tech team down in Longview, Texas, if you know. Missionary tech team was just a, it's a mission group of architects that go all over the world doing this. I was hoping the boy would be here. I'd like you to see these people. They are. I'm talking about real live people. But they said, Jim, it's so far, we don't know if we can make it. And I thought, well, maybe they make it today, but I don't see them in here. But this boy resisted the enemy and commanded them to leave, just as his dad told him. And he's never, I just, they went up to Alaska when I spoke, and they went to the camp from Longview. They came up to Alaska. I was going to be there, and they could get away, really, from the mission. And so I spent a week with them, just a, couple, just a few weeks ago, up in, out of Anchorage. And... Uh, they were there, and I asked this fellow, again, this boy, he prays for me, he's one of my faithful prayer partners, and I said, have you ever had any kind of demonic manifestation like that ever since you were eight years old? And, you know, it's now he's 16, 17, he's not one. When he stood against it and commanded it to go, they knew that this boy meant business. There was no point trying to show up again, because he would just stand against them and send them away, so he never had, never had problems again. Just a neat, neat kid, really loves Christ. So we need to see this position in Christ. Now, from this position in Christ, we want to get involved in what is, we took a parenthesis here, what is what we found, and Bill Gothard's found the same thing, the major cause of Christians living in bondage, Christians being under the influence of enemy spirits. And um, we want to go to... Hebrews chapter 12. And we want to give you a biblical basis for what we're going to say. If you were, if I was working with you one-on-one, I'd ask you this question. You know, this is a very dumb question for me to ask you. Let me ask you this dumb question. Have you ever been hurt? Anybody here not been hurt? We'll arrange it. Anybody here hasn't gone through that? <clears throat> right. There's not a person in here who hasn't been hurt. The issue is not, have you been hurt? The issue is, what have you done with it? What have you done with it? And you have choices. We may have, we may not have choice about being hurt. But I grew up in a home or my dad was an alcoholic. And my dad did not and would not and could not accept me. So I grew up in a home where I was continually verbally abused and continually rejected and told I could never do anything, I'd never amount to anything, that I just wasn't what he wanted in a son. And I didn't know how to respond to that. I wasn't a believer grew up in a you know, non-Christian home, and I just didn't know about this, and I responded naturally. And I came to the point that I literally hated my father. It got so bad 
but I stayed home from school to commit suicide when I was 15 and a half years of age. I could not live like this any longer. And obviously, I failed. Why should I succeed? I'm a failure. I couldn't even do that. So I couldn't even commit suicide. I couldn't even do that right. I couldn't do anything right. And that was so ingrained in me that just recently, when I say recently, and I've been around a while, I keep looking in the mirror and wonder who that old man is looking back at me. Who's <laughs> that? <laughs> it's you all. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I was um, vice president of this mission and I was sitting in my office and I was just thinking how God brought me there and the different Bible schools I taught in and all the different things that happened and it, all of a sudden it dawned on me that I wasn't dumb. You know, I wanted to run out in the hall and stop the, do you know I'm not dumb? Do you know I'm not dumb? But you know, I wasn't having voices telling me you're dumb, you're dumb, you're dumb, you're dumb. I believed it when I was a teenager and I never challenged it. It was always there, always back there. It was a stronghold. You're really dumb. And all of a sudden I just thought, you know, I may not be the smartest guy in the world, but I know I'm not dumb. You know, and you may have some of this stuff from your childhood that you stuck down and it's in there. These are strongholds. We want to deal with strongholds later on. But right now we're dealing with grounds because God says strongholds have to come. You have to take ground back and tear down strongholds. It's got to happen or you will not walk in victory. So I didn't respond in a proper way. I responded with this hatred and bitterness towards my father. And when I got saved, it didn't go away. He was still rejecting me. He was still putting me down. I still hated him. But now that I'm a Christian and I'm pastoring, pastors don't hate their father, they just resent them. <laughs> well, let me tell you, resentment is bitterness in the crib. Give it time. It'll grow up. It'll grow up. Look what it says in Hebrews 12, 15. Look diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. What is the grace of God? And we'll look at that a little bit later today, but right now, just believe me. I like to give you scripture for what I say, but just trust me on this one, and we'll pick it up later on. The grace of God is the empowering of God to respond to life situations in a way that will be pleasing to God. That's God's grace. When someone hurts me, it is natural for me what? To respond back in either anger, resentment, or whatever. That's natural. But God's grace is the empowering on my life that when I am hurt, I can respond back with forgiveness. If you could boil down the message of the Bible, I think the one word that describes what the Bible is about is the word forgiveness. It's all about how God forgives. Why would not the enemy want people who have been forgiven to be full of unforgiveness? It's very hard to share Christ effectively and his forgiveness when I, as a person, am unforgiving in my spirit. It just destroys what I'm saying. It's like I, I'm, I'm not walking the walk. All I'm doing is talking the walk. Do you know what I'm saying? And yet my whole life and my countenance, bitter people. Dr. McGee was my pastor for a while, and he spoke at a, uh, at a camp somewhere, you know, one of these camp family things. And a lady came up, and he said she gave him a piece of her mind that she couldn't afford to lose. 
and he described her, he said, she looked like she'd been weaned on a dill pickle. <laughs> when I was teaching kids at the college, I said, do you ever see these bitter old ladies at church? And they go, yes. I said, you know what they were? Once they said, what? I said, bitter young ladies. You guys better deal with it right here. You want God to use you, you better deal with this. And so he says, look diligently, as any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up and trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. That's one of the problems of bitterness and resentments. It just doesn't stay here. It reaches out, and many people are affected by that defilement. A root of bitterness. I have in my office a very unique plant. Whenever I show it to a teenager, I say, what is it? They say, it's fake. I go, no, that's not right. What does it represent? You know, see these flowers? The kids don't see those. as glad they see them as fake. <laughs> but they're fake glads. I said, well, what is this? It's fake. What is it? They said, it's a, it's a, well, it's a dandelion. I said, right. How many people you know keeps a potted dandelion on their desk? You know, anybody that's doing the street kind of things we do. <laughs> like that dandelion for the flower of the office. But some guy bought it for me. He paid $20 for this little dandelion. And so I showed it to them, I said, how do you get rid of one of these things? If we pluck off the flowers, will I get rid of it? No. So if we mow it over with a lawnmower, will I get rid of it? No. So how do you get it? They say, roots. I said, what if you leave a little bit of root of a dandelion? Now you got to get all the roots. If you had cancer, and we have some doctors here, and you say, well, I'd like to talk to a doctor in the hall. And he says, you know, tell you, that's really, that looks like it. Come to our office, we'll check it out. And we say, yeah, hey, tell you, it's bad news, it's cancer. Good news, it's operable. That's fine. So you have surgery. What's the first thing you want to ask that doctor as you're coming out of the surgery? Did you what? Get it all. Let me tell you, if you leave this conference, you don't get it all. You missed a tremendous truth of this conference. You don't want to walk out of here with any unforgiveness, any bitterness or resentments in your heart. You'll never be free. I want to show you where the scripture clearly teaches that you will definitely have demonic involvement in your life if you have any unforgiveness. I want you to see it in the Word. So we want to go now. There are three steps in dealing with bitterness. If you skip one of these steps, you will not come to freedom. You've got to deal with all three. And we've had people that say, oh, you know, I, I've been to a Gothard thing. In fact, we have people that have been to them 20 sometimes. Full of bitterness. They just can't seem to get rid of it because they didn't deal with all three areas that the scripture talks about. The first area I want you to go to is the book of James. I mean, the book of Peter. First Peter chapter 2. This will be the first step we're going to look at. I need to put it in the context. <clears throat> he says here... And we'll just jump in. We'll, we'll, we'll start with verse 18. The word servants in the King James, if you use the King James, remember, always was slave. It's better translated slave. We think of a servant, we think of someone you hire or fire. These people had no choice. They were owned by somebody else. He's talking about you're somebody that's owned. We, you know, if, you, if you're working in a place and you're being mistreated and you're all of this, you can pray and you can get another job. But these people couldn't get another job. They couldn't leave the servitude. So he's saying, slave, be subject, S-U-B, rank under. Rank under your masters with all fear, not only to those that are good and gentle, but also the difficult, the forward, the ones that make it so hard for you. For this is thankworthy, a worthy of thanking God, if a man, for a good conscience towards God, endures grief, suffering wrongly. 
He's saying, if you are suffering right now, and you're going through suffering, but you know before God that your heart is right, and you're doing right, but you're suffering, he says, thank God for the privilege of suffering for doing right. Because it says in verse 19 of chapter 4, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto the faithful creator. Do you mean it's possible that it be God's will that a Christian suffer? Absolutely. Why? Because let me tell you, if your Christianity doesn't work in suffering, as a non-Christian, I don't need it. If we have to go to Niagara Falls or go to the Yellowstone Park and walk in the trees and stand by a waterfall to have some peace and good feelings, and that's all you get and that's all I get, I don't need your Christianity. I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I, mean, I can do golf or something. Why bother to go there? It just doesn't work. If it doesn't work in the fires, I don't need it. It talks about the trying of your faith, going to the fires. What's the purpose? To purify your faith. When the three men... Daniel's three friends were thrown in the fiery furnace. What was burnt? The ropes that bound them. And those on the outside, looking in that furnace, saw a fourth person walking around like the, the Son of God. You know, we're never told that the three fellows saw Jesus, that those watching these fellows suffer in the flames saw Jesus. Do people see Jesus in your suffering? If they do, then you've got something they need because we're all going to suffer at some time. And so it's an opportunity for me to display to the open, to the, to the world, that Jesus Christ is truly sufficient for every need in every situation of life. And they can trust him. Now, when I was teaching in Kansas City, God gave me the opportunity to disciple a Royals baseball player, which is unique. I hated baseball. And uh, the reason I did is because my dad was a minor league baseball player for a while and had to leave because I was born and couldn't afford to keep us during the depression and tried to make a baseball player out of me and I hated baseball because my dad was just, it was awful. I mean, I can remember as a little child holding the bat. Look at the ball. You didn't look at the ball. Now the bat, I got pictures. The bat was bigger than me. And just, you know, he just, it was, he put a very good, deep-seated resentment towards baseball. So for me to ever be involved in discipling a Royals baseball player was God. <laughs> it just wouldn't work. I wouldn't even go to a Royals game. So anyway, God brings this Royals player in my life during a very difficult time in his life. Outstanding Christian fellow. His bubblegum card and the program had Romans 10, 9, and 10 in his picture. You know, if you confess and not believe in your heart, you'll be saved. He always signed that. He hit home runs. They'd be in the Kansas City newspaper and he talked about Jesus Christ and how he enabled them to do this. He was witnessing to players and leading players to Christ, not only his team and other teams. He's one of the fellows that got the, the chapels going. Every time there is a major league game, if, if you're into baseball, do some praying, and this is what you can do. Every single Sunday where there's a major league game and they're playing on Sunday, the gospel is being preached in both dressing rooms. And any player who wants to go can go hear it. Pray if there's a Sunday game in your team. Pray that some of the players would, would choose to go in there and hear the gospel and receive Christ as Savior. Many players are being saved through those chapels that go on on Sundays. He got those things going. Very, very outstanding Christian fellow. And Whitey Herzog was the coach of the, the team, and Whitey was fired. And they hired another coach who was of another faith and totally disliked Christians. And so this friend of mine, since he speaks out for Christ, but the coach that didn't like Christians, he was in trouble. And he was in trouble. 
and he would not be allowed to play. I, he said, how can you never come to see a game? I said, if you think my friendship with, with you is so I can sit behind home plate, run down on the TV section and the special section, on special seats and watch a, a game for free, you're crazy. He said, Jim, if I thought that was our friendship, we wouldn't have a friendship. He said, take those tickets, get the neighborhood kids. So I was one of the most popular guys in the neighborhood, you know, because we'd go early and he'd have all the players sign the baseballs and give it to the neighborhood kids. So I became popular in the neighborhood, taking kids to the Royals games for free. And we'd sit there and he never played. And I'd tease him. I'd say, uh, I was at the game uh, last night. He said, yeah, I know, I saw you. I said, uh, are you playing? <laughs> he said, no, I didn't play last night at all. So when everybody on the team would be wounded, guess who would have to come out and play? And he'd hit a home run, and he'd say, I just thank the Lord, blah, 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 blah. And the guy would read it, ah, it's <laughs> <Just> awful. <laughs> and he'd pitch, and he'd do something wonderful. I mean, God just, every time he got up, God let him do something special. We get in the papers. He was given the trophy, and I, maybe you're not aware of this. It's a trophy they give to the most outstanding Christian athlete in any sports. He got it. They take all the sports once a year, just one player gets it, who demonstrates Christ. And this coach said he will not get it on the field, he'll get it in the bleachers and the tunnels. So there he is in the tunnels getting his trophy with the TV down there trying to make light and all that kind of stuff to get his trophy. This fellow really was suffering, what? For doing wrong? No. For being a Christian. And God says rejoice. It got so bad that he said, send him to the minors. They sent him to the minor league, which is Omaha. And he called me from Omaha. He said, Jim, do you know why God sent me from the major league to the minor leagues? God, not this fellow. I said, why? He said, I led two guys to Christ. They needed the Lord down here. If he would have gone down bitter and resentment, do you think anybody would become a Christian down there? He would have shared what? Do you know what this team is doing to me? Do you know what they're doing? Blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, does that really make you want to become a Christian? Say, I can be bitter and not be a Christian. <laughs> I can become a Christian and be bitter. I can just hold on to my bitterness. Now he went down and he saw God, just like Joseph did. You meant it for evil, what? But God used it for good. And this fellow was able to get, what? Wisdom. God's perspective on his suffering. And he continued to suffer. And finally, they bought out his contract and said, you'll never play Major League Baseball again. Now, I, I'm not into baseball, but some of baseball fans, if you're a, a sports fan, Really, can you understand what it would mean? The very thing that all your life you wanted to do and you made it and you're being released and your contracts, just they're going to pay you for not playing. The thing you want to do most in all your life. He still did not get bitter. He called me on the phone. We talked about this. He went to see the owner of the team. He walked into the office. The owner was so nervous, Mr. Kaufman, because he thought, he'll hit me with a baseball bat. Or he'll throw a ball and bounce it off my head because there is no reason we're letting him go except that he's a Christian. All the newspaper, the media's wanted to get him on TV, talk shows, let's talk about this Christian Jewish thing going on and all that. He said, no, no comments, no comment. And so he walked into Mr. Kaufman's office and Mr. Kaufman took a look at him and uh, he said, uh, what can I do for you, Jerry? Jerry said, Mr. Kaufman, I've just come by to thank you for allowing me to be part of the Royals organization. This is one of the finest teams and the finest organizations I've ever played for. And I want to just thank and shake your hand for allowing me to be a part of this organization. Thank you very much. And he turned around and he was walking out. He grabbed the doorknob, his opening door, and Mr. Kaufman said, Stop. We can't let a man like you go. So he expected him to do what? 
tell him off. But he saw something different. You know what he saw? Christianity working. And Mr. Kaufman said, you know we can't let you play. If I put you back on the team, he'll quit. He said, but I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a job in the organization. What would you like to do? And he said, be coach of the team. He said, you know, good, good idea, but not yet, Jerry. And so they kept him on. Why? Because this man learned how to draw the mind of the Lord, the grace of God, to respond in suffering that brought healing. Just tremendous fellow. He's still today. He radiates Christ. His boys are now college age, and everybody wants his boys to play baseball. He said, no, I want him to go to college. In fact, one of his boys chose a Christian college. I don't think he even has a baseball team. And they would have him anywhere because his boys are such excellent, excellent people. Well, let's look here. We didn't, still haven't finished. What, what's the step here? Okay. So what glory is it? How is God glorified? And you know what glory is? It's the glow of God that comes on your countenance when you respond properly to suffering. You ever seen people that glowed? Now, you and I want to be godly, but we don't want to pay the price. At a first basic seminar in um, Minneapolis, there were 15,000 people there. A friend of mine went up to Bill Gothard and said, Bill, do you know that Hudson Taylor's grandson's in the audience? And he said, no. And so Bill pulled back the curtain. He looked out and he said, see that guy over there? At the break, check out. Just see if he is. So at the break, this fellow walked out there and he walked over and he said, how do you like the seminar the first night and all this and that? And, and the guy said he liked it very well. <clears throat> and he said, would you be Hudson Taylor's grandson? And he said, yes, I am. So he went back and he said, Bill, I've got to ask you a question before I tell you what happened there. And he said, have you ever seen a picture of Hudson Taylor's grandson? No. Have you ever met him? No. He said, but how could you pick him out of 15,000 people? He said it was easy. The glow of God was on his countenance. You know, it says the righteousness of a father can be visited what? To three and four generations. Psalms 103. So, see, what glory is it? How is God glorified? How does the glow of God come on your countenance? If when you're buffeted for your faults and you take it patiently, you know, you... you we're speeding to get here, and you got a ticket, and you were a sweet Christian. Well, you ought to be. You've broke the law. Yeah? But when you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Look at verse 21. For even hereunto were you called. What are you and I called to do? We're called to suffer for doing right. That's the calling of a Christian. It's not whether you should go to Africa or China or somewhere else. You're called to suffer for doing right. Why? So that wherever you are, people can see the reality of the Christian life. It works. And in those flames of suffering, as God is removing those ropes that are binding you, they might see Christ and the glow of God on your countenance. That's our calling as a believer. We're called to suffer because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps in suffering. 
Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. He said, I want you to realize, Jesus did not suffer because of actions or words, wrong actions or wrong words. Now, we suffer sometimes for wrong actions and wrong words, but not the Lord. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he did. But he always did those things that pleased the Father. But it didn't please the people. And he went through suffering. But verse 23 tells us two things not to do and one thing to do when we suffer. This is the first step in suffering. Who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten. He didn't say, do you realize what's going to happen? Do you realize what I could do? Do you realize I'm the Son of God? Do you realize there's a legion of angels here that I just could call and come down and take care of this? He never threatened them. But what did he do? He committed himself to him that judges righteously. He committed the situation of suffering. He committed the people who were causing him to suffer. He committed them to God. Why? Because God will deal with it how? Righteously. You, can, you put that in simple words. God will always do what's right. If you can't trust God to do what's right, you will not release to God the people that have hurt you. You'll hold on to them. You won't let go of them. Romans 12 says this, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And this is a strong statement, but I'm going to make it strong. If you refuse to release to God the people that have hurt you and you're holding on to them with resentments and bitterness and anger, you release God of any responsibility of dealing with those people because you're doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're taking vengeance. God says, can you trust me? Will you entrust these people to me and allow me to do what's right? And I'm going to close this section with a story. One of the professors at the Bible College that I taught, his daughter was involved in, I believe it was a gang rape or something like that. And uh, they decided that it would be, that she ought to report it to the police because even though I don't think at the time she was uh, walking with the Lord, that it was still, you know, it was a, a law that was violated and, and fellows didn't have a right to do this. So she reported it to the, to the authorities in Los Angeles and he was one of the uh, teaching Romans, I remember, at the college at this time. And he got a call from the L.A. Police Department. And the L.A. Police Department said this. They said, we hate to inform you, but someone rang your daughter's doorbell today. When she went to answer the phone, they killed her. And so it wasn't too hard to figure out who killed her. It probably was part of this motorcycle gang, whatever it was. And they found the fellows. They rounded them up. They had a, a hearing, you know, or arraignment, I guess they call it. And then the trial is that usually it's a year or two years later. I mean, Los Angeles docket, I, one of my nephews that led to Christ is an L.A. sheriff, and an L.A. policeman in the helicopters that fly over L.A., and his brother's a sheriff. I only have two nephews. Um, I only have one sister and both the boys that trusted Christ. And, uh, you know, they, they arrest these fellows, and it's forever before they come to trial because the, the jails are full and the dockets are full. There's so much crime and so on. And so before this fellow came to trial, this professor from our Bible college and his wife went out to Los Angeles, met with the killer of their daughter, and forgave him. 
and then came back to the college and shared that. And you know what our students found out? That Christianity really does work. They couldn't pardon him because that was a legal thing, but they could what? Forgive him. And they did, and they released the fellow to God. And so the first step in getting rid of resentments and bitterness and anger and these kind of things in your life, the first step is this, based on the scripture, is I need to identify those that have hurt me that I have not released to God. And we'll take the other two steps right now after the break. But that's just the first step. Who are they? And you can pray and say, Lord, I give your Holy Spirit the freedom to bring to my heart, to bring to my mind those people that have hurt me that I have not fully forgiven from my heart. I want to make a list of them so that I might do so.